This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. Today I'm joined by Michael Desch, who wrote the book Cult of the Irrelevant, The Waning Influence of Social Science on National Security. Michael Desch is the Packy J.D. Professor of International Relations in the Department of Political Science and the Director of the International Security Center at the University of Notre Dame. He was the founding director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs and the first holder of the Robert M. Gates Chair in Intelligence and National Security Decision-Making at the George Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. Mike, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Beth. In Cult of the Irrelevant, you describe a gap between policymakers and international relations scholars. How did you become interested in that gap And how did you come to research and write this book? Well, I've been a practicing political scientist for about 30 years. And actually, I got interested um, in this business uh, precisely because it was a way to uh, balance uh, both uh, the sustained engagement with concrete real world issues. You know, at the time I was in high school and college, the Cold War was raging and, uh, you know, national security issues had, uh, you know, more than a little uh, pressing uh, relevance to uh, our lives. But I also was interested in uh, not just, you know, becoming a bureaucrat, but also uh, trying to think about these issues uh, from a little bit of a a remove. Um, So, My image uh, of being a professor interested in national security issues was very much shaped uh, by the memory uh, of the golden age uh, of early Cold War national security studies, where you had towering figures like Bernard Brody, uh, Albert Volstetter, um, and especially uh, Thomas Schelling, Uh, who managed to keep uh, a foot in both the ivory tower and inside the uh, beltway. Uh, And so I thought getting into the uh, business in the late 1980s, early 1990s, if I could do the uh, same thing, uh, I would be a very happy man. 
Uh, and I want to be clear, I've had a great career and uh, enjoyed it every step along the way. But one of the things I discovered was that uh, the golden age uh, uh, figure's ability to balance uh, the requirements of academia with, uh, you know, what was going on in the policy world uh, was fast becoming uh, a thing of the past. And it was harder and harder uh, to do both, um, you know, in a way that uh, they had done it before. So it's both a historical reflection on an era that has uh, passed in many respects, but also an analytical uh, undertaking to try to figure out why that happened um, and assess the consequences of it. You know, should we feel nostalgic uh, for the golden age period uh, or should we say, you know, we've moved a lot since then and things are for the better? You argue that the decline of policy relevance of academic work and security studies is a result of the professionalization of political science. Right. Can you tell us about what you found and are you coming to take away all of our quantitative methods and our numbers? <laughs> uh, well, what I found is that uh, the academy, much like any other large and uh, complex organization, tends as a result of its normal functioning to become more inwardly focused and preoccupied. And in a way, that's a result of both the you know, normal functioning of science, but also it's also the normal dynamics of bureaucratic politics. So this preoccupation with ourselves as profession that defines what it works on and how it works on those things by its own standards is in a way a ubiquitous phenomenon. It's like the law or the medicine or engineering. It's not unusual. And in some respects, it's a good thing. I mean, the professionalization of the discipline of political science, the self-conscious reflection uh, on methodology, the attempt to use the most advanced and uh, precise tools of uh, social analysis has in many respects, produced important progress in the field. And that's all for the good. But what I do in The Cult of the Irrelevant is two things. Uh, first is to show that the professionalization of the discipline has also had a downside. And the downside is, is the more we gaze at our own navels, the less likely we are to engage in topics that the rest of society thinks are uh, absolutely important. And by doing so, I think we both hurt ourselves if we become viewed, as I think we are by a lot of people outside the discipline, as being lotus eaters and not really doing work that speaks to uh, broader audiences, the support that we can expect from members of Congress and the general public is going to continue to decline. Secondly, I also think that theory that's well-grounded in the real world, and particularly in 
in terms of the policy issues that uh, policymakers and the public are concerned about also produces better scholarship. I mean, you know, at a, at a certain point, being close to what's happening in the real world is absolutely critical for sound theorizing. Um, and if you're close to issues in the real world, you're also close to being able to say something about policy making. in my judgment. You trace the history of security studies as an academic discipline, but also the parallel development of the use of social science by government in the national security space. Can you talk about these early beginnings and how they continue to affect security studies today? Well, I talk in the uh, early chapters of the book about the beginning of the professionalization of the social sciences, particularly the discipline of political science, uh, my discipline. And basically what I point out is that my discipline was born at the beginning of the 20th century, and it had at its beginnings a dual commitment to both being a science, but also a science that was relevant to the policy concerns that were at the top of the uh, agenda during that particular period of time. And it really, you know, the early part of the 20th century was the high point of the progressive era in which there was great confidence that uh, the expertise of the academy and the, uh, the needs of the rest of society were easily reconcilable. Um, but from the very beginning, it became clear that there were tensions between these uh, two objectives. And the figure for me who sort of epitomizes uh, those tensions was the uh, political science professor uh, from the University of Chicago, Charles Merriam, who was committed to trying to uh, advance both of these goals, but found uh, very quickly that he had to make a choice between one or the other. And in fact, the uh, period between the First World War and the Second World War was the very beginnings of the effort to craft a new science of political science. And Merriam and uh, some of his colleagues were in the forefront of that effort. And as a result of the sort of pushing and hauling between Merriam and other political scientists like Charles Beard, uh, who took a different view, was much more interested in making political science an instrument for dealing with society's problems, the scientists won out. And science became defined as an objective enterprise that was all about pursuing uh, knowledge for knowledge's sake. And it was not only a uh, decision to emphasize basic research, but also the idea that in trying to influence policy, uh, somehow it would corrupt the scientific process became uh, deeply in, ingrained in the DNA of professional social science. So social science and its effort to professionalize very quickly took the discipline in the direction of issuing applied research. Now, 
the subfield of security studies, which also was uh, born in the interwar period, had a much closer alignment with policymaking. It you know, started in the early 1930s and really hit its stride during World War II. And then, of course, with the uh, outbreak of the Cold War in the late 1940s, prolonged period of pretty intense international security conflict and rivalry, Security studies gravitated or at least maintained the commitment to being both a rigorous social science, but also one that was relevant to concrete policy. And that sort of made it neither fish nor fowl in the sense that the rest of the discipline of political science, which security studies uh, had been most closely uh, aligned with, was moving in a very different direction. And so during periods of war or sustained international conflict, security studies in the academy was able to uh, get away with straddling the fence. But it was during periods of peace that the tensions between being a rigorous social science and being policy relevant came back to the fore. Uh, And the rest of the discipline of political science became far less sympathetic to security studies effort to, uh, you know, maintain a foot in both camps. You discuss the Vietnam War in some detail, and the Vietnam War is a time where social science had high relevance with policymakers, but poor results. How did your findings related to the Vietnam War shape your research? Well, I think there was broad recognition that, you know, sometime in the 1960s, the gap between academic social science and the policy world had begun to widen. And that led a lot of people to uh, speculate that it was primarily the result of political controversy associated with the war, and particularly with the uh, significant cooperation between social scientists interested in security issues and the Pentagon and the intelligence community and other parts of government. And I don't want to argue that the political controversy associated with the Vietnam War played no role in the estrangement uh, of academia and government in the national security realm. But what I point out in the book is that the key mechanism for this estrangement was not just political reaction to the war, but had much deeper roots. And the deeper roots, of course, were the effort to craft a science of politics, particularly in the early Cold War period as a result of the behavioral revolution in political science. So in other words, the gap began before the war you know, became uh, very controversial on campus, and the mechanisms driving the two realms apart had less to do with political conflict and more to do with professionalization of the discipline. The Pentagon Papers offered a unique view at the policymaking process. 
How did that allow you to evaluate relevance? And is it possible to continue to evaluate relevance in the national security space where many parts of the policymaking process may be classified? Well, the answer to the latter question is uh, yes. And as you see in the concluding substantive chapter of the book, Chapter 8, I talk about post-Vietnam efforts, some of which continued uh, through the war on terrorism and 9-11 and the U.S. military operations in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. So, it's possible to trace, you know, the continuing efforts of some people to uh, bridge the gap right up into the present. Now, the uh, period before the Vietnam War, in the early years of American involvement in Vietnam, is very well documented. And of course, the Pentagon Papers were only the tip of the iceberg, as it were. Although, as you saw in my book, they were important in terms of tracing the impact of academic social science on government thinking about uh, nation building and counterinsurgency. But there were a lot of other documents, including unpublished documents, that were uh, quite helpful in giving me a sort of fine-grained sense about how policymakers were reaching out to scholars and how they were trying to use uh, scholarly expertise to help them figure out how to, uh, if not win, at least not lose the war in Vietnam. And the two key figures I talk about during that period are the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs under Kennedy and Johnson, John McNaughton, who was a Harvard uh, Law School professor, and his good friend, the Nobel economist, Thomas Schelling. And I have McNaughton's unpublished diaries during that period that show his regular meetings with Schelling at critical junctures in which he's helping to make some of the most important decisions about U.S. policy in Vietnam. Speaking of Schelling, the influence of economics and its associated methods on security studies are huge. Can you talk about that influence and the pros and cons to adopting an economics framework to evaluate national security issues? Yeah, I, I mean, economics is the red thread running through the history of the professionalization of political science throughout the period um, since the end of the Second World War. And it's it's really an interesting case because in the economic realm, academic economics, which is highly quantitative and highly formalized, has managed to uh, maintain the balance between rigor and relevance in a much less troublesome way than other social science disciplines. And I think that just has to do with the nature of the issues that economics deals with. It's a phenomenon that are easily quantifiable and over which individuals most closely approximate the rational decision-making process at the center of so many economic models. Now, 
the success of economics has been for political science a bit of a siren song in the sense that if the economists can do this, why can't we do it as well? And so in the early 1950s and through the 60s, there was a lot of interest in exploring how economic techniques and theories might be transferred to the national security realm. And Schelling, I think, was probably one of the most important figures in that effort, uh, both at the Rand Corporation, uh, this very interesting federally funded research and development center that the Air Force set up to try to, uh, you know, bridge the gap between the two worlds. You know, there was a period of time, I think, when the marriage of economics and security studies was quite fruitful. And I think Schelling's work on nuclear deterrence, especially in the late 1950s, was certainly illustrative of the compatibility between the, uh, the two approaches. But the guy, I think, who's more typical uh, of uh, the process of political science, you know, being initially enamored of the economic approach, trying it out, and then very quickly realizing its limitations was the political science ber- scientist Bernard Brody, who was also at RAND for a long time, including overlapping with Schelling there, but subsequently uh, Brody finished his career at uh, UCLA in the Department of Political Science. And Brody went from being very bullish uh, on the marriage of economics and security studies in the 50s to being quite skeptical in the 60s and 70s that that was a marriage that was bound to last. And I think just to, you know, sort of make simple a long and convoluted process. But Brody came to uh, think that the issues that economists dealt with and the issues that security specialists dealt with were in many ways apples and oranges. Um, And the idea that there would be one social science that would be applicable to uh, all the different fields of the social sciences, including uh, international security, became less and less persuasive to him. And that was as a result of, you know, being uh, somebody at a place like Rand who was constantly uh, trying to uh, apply the techniques and approaches uh, of economics to real-world national security policy problems. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Following World War II, there's a debate going on over the funding of social sciences by the National Science Foundation. Can you talk about that debate and perhaps how that tracks with historic tensions between natural sciences and social sciences? Sure. The uh, 
story of the establishment of the National Science Foundation and particularly the uncertain role of the social sciences in it is absolutely central to my story of how uh, the social sciences became less and less eager to immerse themselves in policy-relevant research. And the story basically goes like this. Vanover Bush, who was a natural scientist and was also FDR and Harry Truman's uh, science advisor, was very eager after the end of World War II to find a mechanism by which government would continue to support scientific research broadly defined in the university world. During the war, there had been a lot of government support for work that was being done in the natural sciences in the university because uh, this work was uh, often relevant to the uh, advancing the war effort. So Bush wanted to, and many other natural scientists, wanted to continue that after the end of the war. But that effort became politically controversial in Congress because the members of Congress uh, or many members of Congress were in principle willing to support scientific research, but they wanted a payoff for it. They wanted work that was directed towards concrete real world problems that they could uh, explain to their constituents why it was necessary for federal funds uh, to be going in this direction. But Bush and many other natural scientists didn't want a bunch of congressmen telling them what sort of research they should be doing. So they pushed a scientific purist stance that science was all about basic research and knowledge for knowledge's uh, sake. Um, and that that was the sort of research that the National Science Foundation should be supporting. So Bush, in a sense, uh, won that fight, and the NSF became focused on supporting basic research uh, for the most part. But then that raised the question among many of the natural scientists about whether social science could uh, be considered scientific in the same way that the natural sciences were. Um, and many natural scientists were skeptical uh, about the social sciences. Some just thought that they were not scientific in the same way that the natural sciences were. Um, but others were more concerned about the political controversy that social science often engendered. And uh, their view was, you know, maybe you can make social science scientific in the way we understand science, but so many of the issues that the social sciences look at are radioactive politically. Let's not get, you know, let ourselves endanger the larger effort to establish the NSF by uh, getting it involved in political controversy. So what that did is, first of all, it delayed the establishment uh, of the National Science Foundation for a number of years until that fight got sorted out. 
And then for about a decade, uh, the place of the social sciences on the NSF agenda was the subject uh, of much debate. Um, and finally, towards the end of the 1950s, uh, there was a grudging willingness uh, at NSF uh, to fund some social science research, but it very much was oriented towards uh, funding that social science research that looked the most like the natural sciences, meaning uh, highly quantitative uh, and formal, and oriented towards basic rather than applied research. So it was Talcott Parsons, a sociologist at Harvard and one of the uh, great proponents of the behavioral revolution, who famously said that if the social sciences want to get into the NSF, they're going to have to ride the coattails of the natural sciences. And that very much set you know, the sort of model for uh, the social sciences about what was a legitimate scientific approach, which increasingly came to exclude uh, policy relevance. Some academics point to the use of social science in initiatives like Project Camelot as evidence to support their ethical opposition to applied research in support of the state. What is the appropriate relationship between the state and scholar? Well, you know, I mean, Project Camelot, which was uh, an effort at American University to marshal social science for counterinsurgency and predicting political conflict in the third world, uh, certainly did not help the effort to uh, make the case that social science uh, should be more broadly relevant. There's no doubt about that. But I think the case of Camelot is not one that suggests there's no way to effectively utilize social science for uh, policymaking uh, without undermining important ethical values. I think the uh, lesson from Camelot uh, had more to do with what happens when you try to wall off social science from the uh, rest of the uh, academy and mistakes like that you know, can happen in a situation like with what we saw there. Second thing I would say, though, is there is certainly an ethical obligation of scholars, and indeed, I think policymakers and everybody else, to be attentive to how uh, what they do affects the lives of people in the United States and around the world. Um, and so it's important to be thinking about those sorts of ethical issues. But as I argue in the book, it's also important from an ethical standpoint for social science to think about what it can positively contribute both to the society in which it operates, but to the larger common wheel as well. So, you know, my bottom line is ethical considerations pull in both directions, not only in favor uh, of pulling up the drawbridge of the ivory tower and retreating from engagement with policy, but also with being deeply engaged in it in the right way. And the, the hero for me on that score was the great 
uh, German sociologist, uh, Max Weber, who um, in the early 20th century was both one of the most influential scholars in terms of uh, the methodology of the social scientists, but he was also somebody who was regularly engaged in the pressing policy issues of the day uh, in his native Germany. So, you know, I think there's uh, plenty of evidence that suggests that one can be an engaged social scientist and not be a war criminal. I wanted to address the issue of assumptions. I remember reading that you had looked at course evaluations from your students and their comments on some of the training they received in methods and approaches, and that you'd use their feedback to address the assumption that policymakers would appreciate some of these specialized methods if they only knew more about them. Can you talk about that example? And are there other faulty assumptions that academics make about policymakers or vice versa that contribute to the gap between these groups? Yeah. Well, you asked if I'm going to take away your numbers um, as a result of, uh, you know, my work in this area. And the answer is no. Uh, I mean, what I found is, that you know, policymakers in the national security realm uh, are not opposed to cutting edge social science. Uh, That's not the message at all. Rather, they come to the problems they deal with and and how they want to use social science uh, from a very practical uh, standpoint. So if you can make the case uh, that econometrics or game theory or, you know, any of the other uh, sort of cutting edge approaches of social science will help them get a better answer to a policy question they're all for it. I think the problem is, though, and and I, you know, uh, have come to this conclusion, you know, both after teaching for 10 years in graduate uh, public policy programs, but also being um, in a PhD program in political science uh, here at Notre Dame and at other universities, that increasingly the discipline uh, pursues research techniques, not so much uh, because they are convinced that uh, this will provide uh, a better answer to a pressing real-world problem, but for the opposite reason, that they've concluded that these approaches are the only legitimate way to do science. Um, And so if you're not using Uh, these techniques, uh, you're not a scientist. Um, And so it's really a call uh, for problem rather than method-driven research agendas uh, in the academy, and also a recognition that policymakers very much operate under a logic of appropriateness when they look at academic social science. So if they're interested in public opinion in the United States or another country, they're you know very uh, happy to uh, utilize work uh, that uh, employs uh, cutting edge survey techniques and uh, you know the uh, best analysis for uh, analyzing the results. Um, but I think what they uh, you know sort of bristle at 
and, and this is what the students in the public policy programs I taught in is, you know, when they see these approaches being uh, used for their own sake or applied to other uh, substantive questions where they're clearly not applicable. And then they sort of, you know, roll their eyes and, uh, you know, shut down in terms of listening to us. A contributing factor to the gap between social science and policymakers is the gap between research and actionable use of that research. You mentioned that the field of engineering developed to bridge that gap for natural sciences. What discipline can complement social sciences in that same way? Well, I mean, that's the $64 million or billion dollar question. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the relationship between uh, the natural science disciplines uh, and engineering or medicine, uh, for example, uh, manifests some of the same tensions that we see uh, between international security studies and political science. So I'm not sure uh, engineering is uh, a full panacea for the problem. On the other hand, though, what's interesting is I find myself uh, talking a lot to engineers about how to think about these, uh, you know, larger issues um, and uh, finding a lot of resonance in how they look at the uh, at the world. Um, and so, you know, maybe thinking about uh, international security uh, as the social science uh, equivalent of engineering uh, is not a bad analogy. You describe many potential causes that may contribute to academic research not addressing policy questions. They range from institutional issues to personal philosophy. Is there one cause that stands out that, if mitigated, would make the biggest impact to bridge the gap between academics and policymakers? So think a little bit about how a young um aspiring PhD in political science uh, is going to make his way in the discipline these days. He's going to have to get a job, uh, his first job or her first job, in a political science department that may have a few IR people in it, but also will have American politics, political theory, and comparative politics uh, folks in it. Uh, and these people will uh, have very different uh, views uh, in terms of what's substantively important, but also uh, what's the proper balance between uh, the utilization uh, of cutting edge techniques and their application to the real world. So to get a job, uh, you've got to be able to speak to the discipline of political science as a young person. And then to get promoted in the field, uh, you have to do, continue to do the same thing. So, you know, is it any surprise that if your whole life is determined by professional political scientists, that you're going to be mo most interested in meeting their criteria and standards for excellence than anything else? So if it were the case that throughout a political scientist's career, that they were evaluated not only by members of the guild, 
but also uh, by people outside the guild in the areas of government uh, or society to which uh, their research is most relevant, uh, that I think would uh, change uh, the incentives uh, very, very dramatically. Uh, in other words, if during a 10-year case, it was not only about, did you use uh, the most sophisticated techniques? Are you a good social scientist? Did you publish in the right disciplinary journals? But also, is this work right in terms of the way the world really works? And can it help deal with the world's problem, I think the discipline would look very differently if we had to respond to both of those sets of considerations. Conversely, what could policymakers do to better engage with academia? Well, I think a lot of policymakers have basically given up on us. Um, And, you know, part of that I know better than or as well as almost anybody else is a function of the fact that, you know, we uh, in the ivory tower have become less and less interested in speaking with them. But I also think that policymakers have other places to go to get policy relevant research. There are all sorts of think tanks in Washington Uh, that have people with PhDs, uh, many from very good universities. Um, And also there's the for-profit world, um, you know, the Beltway Bandits and uh, contractors that also hire social scientists. Um, You know, and so those are easy places for the policymaker to go and get the sort of outside expertise that at one time we in academia provided. The problem is, though, that uh, the think tank world has become uh, highly politicized. It's become not a place where serious long-term translational research is done, uh, but it's become more sort of the holding tank for the uh, out-of-work politicos uh, of the party that's uh, out of power in the executive branch. Uh, And likewise, the for-profit world has its own set of incentives uh, in terms of the research that they do uh, that leads me to be concerned that if uh, policymakers uh, are just relying on the Beltway Bandits, they aren't going to get the best scholarship uh, in the social sciences that's out there. Um, And so I think that they ought to... uh, you know, continue to try to uh, engage those of us in the ivory tower because it'll be hard work and there'll be challenges. But I think the perspectives, the university world especially, uh, have on many issues uh, are important parts of uh, the larger debate uh, about how we should deal with them. In your opinion, Who of the great political scientists has gotten it right in terms of balancing scholarly rigor and broader relevance? Well, there are a number of names that I could uh, throw out there. But for me, the guy that was sort of my intellectual hero in this regard was the late Harvard government professor, uh, Sam Huntington, uh, somebody who over the course Uh, of a, uh, you know, 60, maybe 70 year uh, career was able to make uh, 
important contributions in o- almost every subfield uh, of political science. And he was able to do great scholarship. At the same time, he was doing work that was uh, of great interest uh, to policymakers uh, in Washington. And I remember uh, my wife and I had uh, dinner with he and his wife, Nancy, at a very nice seafood restaurant in, uh, on Martha's Vineyard one summer. And my wife asked Sam, how do you go about thinking uh, about writing a book like The Clash of Civilizations, which is probably uh, the book of his that had the uh, broadest audience? Uh, and Sam sat back for a moment and, uh, you know, thought about it. And he said, I've always thought that I get the ideas uh, about what to work on from reading The New York Times or reading The Economist. And then I go and I say, this is obviously an important real world problem. How can I analyze it in the most rigorous way possible and come up with answers that'll be useful for dealing with it. And and I thought that's exactly right. That's if the discipline thought about uh, balancing uh, rigor and relevance in that way, uh, in terms of, you know, embracing a problem oriented agenda for what we work on and how we do it political science would be exactly where I think it ought to be. Well, Mike, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, would you mind sharing what you're working on now? Well, I'm working on uh, two things, aside from trying to sell copies of Cult of the Irrelevant, which will be an ongoing uh, objective for me. Um, One issue that I am uh, working on uh, is nuclear strategy. Um, And in a way, that's sort of a return to uh, the golden age of uh, security studies. A lot of the seminal work that uh, Bernard Brody and Thomas Schelling did in the 1950s was focused on the whole question of how should we think about the impact of the nuclear revolution uh, on statecraft. Now, by the time I got into the business in the late 80s and the early 1990s, nuclear issues seemed to have been pretty well worked over. And of course, with the end of the Cold War uh, in the mid-1990s, the urgency uh, of nuclear issues uh, seems to, uh, you know, seem to have, uh, uh, you know, waned quite a bit. Um, But recently, nuclear issues are back on the table in a big way, particularly uh, given uh, the possibility of renewed great power conflict between nuclear powers like Russia and especially China. Um, So I'm interested in particular about how the senior figures in the National Command Authority, uh, primarily the president, uh, think about uh, the utility of nuclear weapons in a crisis. So that's one thing that I'm working on. I'm also working on another big project, uh, which I hope will turn into a book that seeks to uh, understand the paradoxical 
uh, situation uh, in our secular age in which religion continues to be an important element of national identity. And there are just a whole host of cases from uh, post-Soviet Russia to the BJP in India to the AKP in Turkey to all sorts of places where uh, secular nationalist movements um, have given way to deeply uh, religiously infused uh, national identities. Um, and that's a puzzle. I mean, we came to believe um, in the 1950s and 1960s um, that as the world modernized, it inevitably was going to become more secular. Um, but it hasn't happened in a lot of places, and I'm uh, trying to uh, untangle that paradox. We wish you the best of luck, and thank you for being on the show today. It's my pleasure, Beth. Cult of the Irrelevant, The Waning Influence of Social Science on National Security is available now from Princeton University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.